Good morning, everyone. <laughs> okay, how about we pray and then I can start. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, may your Holy Spirit reveal all truth to us and show us the individual message you have for each of us. Amen. So today's topic is a beautiful mind and the Oxford Dictionary defines the mind as the element of a person that enables them to be aware of the world and their experiences, to think and to feel, the faculty of consciousness and thought, a person's ability to think and reason or the intellect. It's generally thought by scientists to be in the brain, but it's not the same as the brain. And the brain is the place where the mind is housed. So what does the world say we as women should think? What should be going on in our minds? Well, from my impressions of the media, it seems our minds should be ordered and organised with running lists of things to do and a copy of the calendar of all activities coming up in our homes. We should always be cool, never emotional, be able and willing to organise all our loved ones, juggle multiple roles with ease, always be confident, but not too confident because that would be seen as assertive or aggressive, successful at everything, be the one in the group who does the caring role, like pouring the tea, and work hard but don't be too ambitious. Now, these are gross generalisations and some of these perceptions are changing and have been changing over time. But I actually think we still keep those expectations in our minds and we measure ourselves against them constantly. Did you know that research has shown that women will check their reflection in, in a window or something an average of eight times a day? We use re reflections from shop windows, people's sunglasses, our Zoom screens, and even our smartphones. What are we checking for, do you think? Perhaps we're checking our appearance because we want to make sure we look good, especially compared to those around us. What we're really doing is looking for anything that's not up to standard. Have you ever listened to yourself talk? When people pay you a compliment about the way you look or something you've done, how do you reply? Do you struggle to say thank you? Inside your mind, are you saying, if only they knew the real me? When you meet new people, are you doing an internal mental checklist, comparing yourself to them? And do you look at successful women and think they must have it all, they're so together, you'll never be able to reach their standard? Stacey Eldridge, a successful leader of a global Christians women's forum, wrote a recent blog titled, Lessons from a Fat Life. Now I had to read it. She said of herself, I have my share of struggles. I have more than my share of victories. I am well acquainted with failure and I am bathed in measureless grace. Yet the grip food has on me remains the defining battle of my adult life. I get free. I think I'm done. It comes back. 
It has caused me tidal waves of embarrassment and swept me away in shame. It has led me to dig deep in order to stand against the screaming accusation that as I am failing here in such a key area, I am disqualified as a lover of God, a teacher of his goodness, a woman meant to draw others to his heart. We may not struggle with our weight and eating like Stacy, but we each have our own struggles and we probably have the same thought pattern. When we struggle with something, we tend to turn it in on ourselves. We feel failure and we self-blame and we stop believing that God loves us and the promises he made to us. Brené Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate College, calls this process shame. And it's interesting that it featured in both the songs that we have sung today. She defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. As Christians, this feeling of shame can cause us to feel that we are not good enough for God's love. That's simply not true. And that's what we're saying today. It's not true for me and it's not true for you. But don't be surprised when these thought patterns creep in and you find yourself down this dark hole. And certainly don't add the fact that you're in the dark hole to the list of things that are now on the blacklist against yourself. You know the thinking, here I go again, of course I can't control my own thoughts, of course I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, I don't know, but. We need not be surprised about these thought patterns because we aren't living in heaven yet. We aren't actually perfect yet. Yes, Jesus is Lord of the universe. He defeated death and evil when he rose again, but we're still living in a time of battle. The evil one is still around, trying to get us to turn our eyes and our hearts from our loving God. In Romans, Paul tells us that even though we're Christians, our minds are still at war with our spirits, which now belong to God. We will want to obey, but we can't do it perfectly. As Stacy describes in her blog, shame, self-loathing and self-hatred are wicked stepsisters, releasing the fumes of hell. They are aligned with the enemy's sulfuric breath. They are familiar patterns with every addiction. They make up the links of unyielding chains that hold us fast. They are liars, unseated by the blood of Jesus. The lie is that we are unloved, unlovable, unworthy and worthless. But this is a lie, because the truth is the exact opposite. We do have a purpose, a destiny in Jesus, to serve him on this earth and to live with him in heaven. We do possess the love of God. We are adopted by him. He is our loving father. We do have his spirit in us to help us fight the battles that we have in our minds. And we can be sure of our place in his family. When Jesus looks at us, he sees a glorious creation which he formed in his mother's womb. We do take his breath away. We are being changed being perfected by him 
through trials and ordeals in this world. So there is hope for change in those ugly thought processes, for growing beautiful minds through Jesus. We've heard a lovely testimony from Trish, thank you. And in the New Testament, there are a number of accounts of people who changed because of Jesus. The one I want to look at today is Martha. She was the sister of Mary. She had Jesus in her house, physically. He and his friends stayed with her and her family and she was part of the group listening to his teaching and then she went into the kitchen to prepare a meal and that's when her mind started to betray her. She started to compare herself with her sister Mary who was still sitting at Jesus' feet intently listening to his teaching. I don't know for certain but I could imagine that her thoughts went something like this. Here I am I in the kitchen doing all the work alone while Mary's in there sitting in raptures listening to Jesus. He probably thinks she's better than me. He cares more about her than me. Poor me. And the result of that thought pattern? Well, Martha told Jesus off. Lord, she said, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Imagine that, telling Jesus off. (laughs) Jesus' answer was so beautiful. Martha, Martha, he said, which is code for, I know you, my dear one, and I love you. He knew her intention was good, that she wanted to prepare the perfect meal, so he didn't tell her to stop. But Jesus did draw Martha back to the core of the matter. Learning from Jesus, listening to Jesus, was the better thing that day and Martha's thought patterns had shut her ears and her heart. As a result of this encounter though Martha did change we know that because at a later time she met Jesus again and her words reveal a strong and absolute belief that Jesus was the Son of God and a contentment in his decision and in his power. How do we grow in understanding? How do we overcome the negative thoughts and voices in our minds? How do we achieve beautiful minds? So this is where we turn to our passage for today from Philippians. And in the passage, uh, Paul starts by telling the Philippians to stand firm. And he reminds them that the Lord is near. And then there are two instructions. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's the first one. So what is prayer? It's talking to Jesus. In another letter, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The eyes of your heart. This phrase is translated in the Amplified Version of the Bible as, and I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very centre and core of your being, may be enlightened 
flooded with light by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a lovely phrase? The eyes of your heart, the very centre and core of your being. Going to Jesus when our minds are at war of us, at with us, when we feel ashamed, is opening the eyes of your heart. This is what Martha did, and what I love about her story is that what she opened to Jesus and said to him wasn't pretty. She talked to Jesus, and even though her words weren't totally polite and tidy, or a perfect account of her thought patterns, by opening up to him she revealed what was going on. And he listened, and he knew, and he healed. So let's follow Martha's example and just start. When we feel those thought patterns in our heads, break the cycle. Lift our thoughts out of ourselves and up to Jesus, and he will be near. In Ephesians, Paul prays that our hearts will be enlightened or illuminated with knowledge. It's a funny thing, isn't it, that our minds and our hearts are so closely intertwined. As we talk to God, our Lord, who loves us and is always near to us, his spirit enlightens our hearts. He reveals the dark thoughts, not so we can be shamed by them, but so they can be swept away. Swept away and replaced by knowledge. Knowledge about how much God loves us. A deep knowledge that can warm our hearts and give us beautiful minds. The second thing that Paul tells the Philippians in our reading today is to build a store of God knowledge. In verse 8 he says to meditate on, to think on, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Building a store of knowledge resources takes time, so we need to make time. I was a bit shocked recently when my iPhone told me that I spend an average of one and a half hours a day on my iPhone. And I don't see myself as addicted to it at all. And that doesn't include the time I spend on my iPad or on my desk computer. Goodness, I don't think I spend that much time talking to my husband. And when he read this for review, he said yes. He agreed. How much time do you think you spend? I'm not necessarily saying it's bad to use a phone or a computer, but I was just challenged by two things. The first one was that I'm getting a lot of input from my devices. What is the quality and the tone of that input? And secondly, am I getting the corresponding, if not more, input from my relationship with my Father God? Do I spend an hour and a half a day consciously with him? So I was challenged afresh to put aside time each day to spend with him. Because if I can spend an hour and a half on a phone, surely I can spend at least half an hour with God. You know, it's that kind of equation. It's not really an equation, but it's just a shock to be faced with that reality. And that time needs to be about not just talking, but also listening and reading his word and building up 
that store of truth and pure knowledge, things that are lovely and admirable and praiseworthy. So I challenge you to think about how you spend your time. You may not spend an hour and a half a day on your iPhone, but there may be other things. Um, and versus how much time you spend on the, with the Lord. Now, the more I get to know the Apostle Paul, the more I find him fascinating. I have always tended to think of him as very scholarly and learned and so logical in his arguments. But I'm actually learning that he's also very passionate, or he was very passionate, passionate about his relationship with God and about his flock, the churches he established. He loved God so much and he desperately wanted his flock to know that love and to live in deep relationship with God. Time and again, Paul reminds his flock and us too of God's love and the first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians where we find the words, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, gives us a rich description of the blessings that are lavished on us as followers of Christ. It is definitely a beautiful example and one I recommend you keep in your store of knowledge to meditate on. Here's a summary of this description. These are the blessings available to those who are in Christ. Before the creation of the world, God chose and called us to be his people. So we have a deep assurance that we are loved by him and he will keep us until the end. Through Christ, we are adopted as sons into God's family. And it's a deliberate use of the word son because the meaning is that we have the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. So what that really means in Paul's writing is that we are full heirs of God, full members of God's family. (coughs) Through Jesus, we have been freely given God's grace and forgiveness. So although we continue to fight these battles in our minds now and suffer the effects of the way they break our relationship with God and others, they can be wiped clean. Any time we approach God and ask for forgiveness for those thought patterns, he gives us his mercy and fulfills his promise of forgiveness. We will receive a rich and glorious inheritance. We will be new and perfect people living in God's new world where there will be no more sorrow or pain or death. And we have access to God's incomparably great power now and in this life. We know this power is real because we have evidence of it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me take a moment to read Paul's description of this power in full. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let us know this power and know it is available to us, but then let us lay hold of it through faith, appropriate it. The more we know of the power of God, the more we will believe, the more we grasp the fact of this power through our minds and through our actions, we will lay hold of it by faith. It will become part of us. So let's summarise. 
As Christian women, we're subject to a struggle in our hearts and minds between our worldly minds and God's spirit within us. We see this in the dark and ugly thought patterns that sometimes capture our minds. We should not be surprised by this because we're still living in a world in which there is a battle for our devotion. The evil one would like to turn us away from our devotion to our loving God to get us to stop believing in his love for us and to forget that we are glorious creations in his eyes. There is hope for change. We see that in the example of Trish and Martha. Even though, and particularly with Martha, even though she was physically in the same room as Jesus, she was subject to those ugly thoughts. Through her example, we can see that the first step is to talk to God, open the eyes of our hearts to his enlightenment, allow him in so he can sweep away the thoughts. We need to replace the ugly with the good, pure and true knowledge of God about how he sees us. We can do this more easily if we have a store of knowledge built up through study and meditation on God's word, which we can quickly draw upon. And we know we have his power available to change because we have evidence through the example of Jesus who was raised from the dead and exalted on his throne in heaven. Here is the last word from Stacy, and then I will pray for us. We know from the word of God that his mercies are new every morning. They never run out. He is not tired of us coming to him again and again and, oh yeah, again. He looks at us with compassion. He understands our struggles and why we have them and the truth that they do not define us. Only Jesus does that, beloved, only Jesus. You are your father's child. You are the beloved of God. You are the chosen and holy one who has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus and you belong to him. Your future is assured. Your destiny is stunning. One day you and I will run in a depth of freedom not known since the Garden of Eden and we will look like and be who we truly are. Even now he says we are beautiful. He is not disappointed. He is not ashamed. He beckons us again to come close. By thinking on these words, you will truly become beautiful minds. So let us pray, and I'll use Paul's prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything, including us, in every way. Amen.